Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Sunday, December 11th. Amanda Borchel Don here in our Jerusalem offices with our diplomatic correspondent, Lazar Berman, and Palestinian affairs correspondent, Jack Mukand. Hello to you both. Good morning. Good morning. Good to be here. So good to see you both. <laughs> we have a lot to discuss, including rare remarks made by Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, how the coup in Peru maybe will affect ties with Israel, reports of the arrest of three members of Iran's Jewish communities, and why Moroccans display the Palestinian flag at the World Cup. But first, a short break. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachuk Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek team at www.sarachuklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. And we're back. Jack, let's start with you. Palestinian Authority President Abbas is apparently on some kind of media blitz. On Wednesday, he said in an interview that he is opposed to taking up arms against Israel. And then on Friday, he called upon the international community to, quote, refrain from dealing with the next Israeli government if it refuses to accept the principle of two states for two peoples, which it basically has already. So why the sudden spotlight? Well, last month, Mahmoud Abbas gave his first public interview in five years. I think his handlers are generally quite careful about keeping him out of the limelight. He has a tendency to make gaffes, and that's... Berlin, shall we say? Yes, Berlin is certainly (laughs) a, a salient example. And he basically has been going on this media blitz because he's concerned about his legacy. He is 88 years old, he's a chain smoker, he's in poor health, and he knows he doesn't have much time left. And he's also acutely aware that he's not the kind of national hero that his predecessor Yasser Arafat was and continues to be in the Palestinian imagination. And that's because he's had a rather tumultuous tenure uh, as the PA president. Um, The peace process has been largely mothballed. Gaza basically left the PA orbit in a bloody split between Fatah and the Islamist group Hamas. And he's been seen as largely corrupt by the population. And that has really, really damaged his legitimacy and popularity. Um, And so he's been giving these interviews. And I think there are really two salient points to take from what he's saying. Uh, One is that he wants his legacy to be that he changed the international community's discourse and general position towards the Palestinian issue, that he gradually brought the world over to see the Palestinian narrative. And he says that in those interviews, that it used to be the Zionist narrative that was dominant, and now the Palestinian narrative is dominant. And he's attributing that largely to his own efforts. Um, 
for example, in the first interview he gave in Cairo, um, he said that 92% of American synagogues are now against Netanyahu's policies. He largely, he took that number out of the ether. He just made it up. But he is pointing to something that has a certain substance in reality, which is that American Jews are increasingly against Israeli policy. American Jews tend to be more left-wing supporters of the Democratic Party. Uh, Netanyahu has dominated Israeli politics for over a decade now, and Israeli young people are turning more to the right wing. So even if uh, he's using fabricated statistics, uh, he's making a point that has a certain uh, truth to it, which is that um, among American Jews, and I think also among the American uh, the, the international community, there's there's more and more sympathy towards Palestinians. Uh, and the other thing that I think is is salient is that he's um, blaming America for um, the lack of progress that has occurred under his tenure. One thing that a lot of people don't realize about Abbas is that he's actually trained as a historian. He has a PhD in history from a Soviet university, the Patrice Lumumba Friendship University. And he wrote a rather controversial um, uh, thesis that he hasn't entirely renounced. He said he wouldn't write it these days because the Palestinians are no longer at war with Israel. But he wrote a dissertation arguing that Zionists had an equal share of responsibility for the Holocaust, uh, that Nazis and Zionists worked together. And so he's a historical thinker, but he's also a bit prone to conspiratorial historical thinking. And in his interviews, he's been talking a lot about how America has been at fault for basically everything bad that's happened to the Palestinians. Going back to the Balfour Declaration, he said that the Balfour Declaration, which was uh, a British declaration um, stating uh, her, his majesty's government at the time, his majesty's government's interest in creating a Jewish state, he said that that was actually an American uh, initiative that was forced on the British and then uh, that the, the the mandate ended so that the the, the Americans could take over and make a, a protectorate. So he's talking a lot about historical issues, blaming the Americans. And I think that's a, a sign of him perhaps being a bit out of touch with his audience. When you talk to Palestinians, they're not particularly concerned about, you know, the early history of Zionism and uh, the role of America over the decades. They're interested in more immediate issues. And he's sort of litigating historical issues and also litigating uh, you know, UN resolutions from the 1940s. Um, but yeah, I think he's he's thinking about his legacy and that might make a person think in broad historical terms. And I think he's also thinking about the future uh, in terms of succession. When one talks about the succession, you'll often hear Palestinians say, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, may God extend his years, which is a kind of Islamic formula when you talk about someone who's aging. Uh, and they say it with a kind of sardonic half smile, and on the one hand, they are ready for new leadership. But on the other hand, there is a lot of consternation about what might happen if there's a bloody um, succession battle uh, in the West Bank uh, for PA authority. And uh, the hope is that the the big political figures will get into a back room and figure out their differences. But the, there is there's quite a bit of consternation. And that's part of Abbas's legacy as well, what happens after he passes away and the succession uh, struggle that might or might not take place. Okay, Jack, thanks so much for that. Laser, let's turn to you. Uh, three members of Iran's small Jewish community were arrested recently as part of the crackdown on the ongoing anti-regime protests. So I believe one has been released and the community has previously condemned the protests. So what do we know about the other two? 
so far? We don't know much. Uh, an Iranian source outside of Iran told the Times of Israel late last week that uh, indeed three members of the Jewish community were arrested, two inside of Tehran and one in Shiraz. One of the uh, Jewish uh, community members, the, one of them from Tehran was released, and we don't know uh, as of now the fate of the other two. As you mentioned, the Jewish community tends to put out statements in support of the regime. Um, at the beginning of the protest in September, in the wake of the death of the young Kurdish woman who died in regime hands uh, after being arrested for violating uh, the dress code. Uh, Masa Amini was her name. So that the, the Jewish community um, put out a statement warning people to stay away from the synagogues for their safety. Um, and they, they last month uh, condemned the, the protests and, and came out in favor, of the, in favor of the regime. You might remember in 2020, after the killing of top um, IRGC General Qasem Soleimani, the Jewish community, I believe it was the top rabbi, uh, put out a statement uh, condemning that assassination. So it is certainly you know, within um, the pattern of the Jewish community to kind of come out in these pro-regime ways. Um, I won't. I won't say that thousands have been arrested, as we know, in these protests. So it doesn't look like you know three Jews being arrested doesn't look like a particular focus on the Jewish community, but it's something um, you know that could be particularly sensitive. They could be particularly particularly um, vulnerable at, in this time of, of significant unrest uh, in the Islamic Republic. Okay, thank you, Laser. Staying with you, Laser. Peru has its first female president, Dina Bularte. Forgive my pronunciation. Do we know anything yet about how this surprise new government may view Israel? Uh, no, I haven't heard anything particular about that, and that's certainly not the focus um, of, of, I'm sure, of what they're thinking about right now. But I will say that uh, the previous president, who was ousted, put under arrest, Pedro Castillo. He was certainly a leftist, but he wasn't, you know, a kind of a fire-breathing anti-Israel figure. Uh, you know, he was seen uh, embracing uh, Brazil's uh, Bolsonaro, who was seen as a you know, very pro-Israel. Uh, right-wing leader on the continent, and in front in, at the UN in September, he said that you know he's for an independent, viable Palestinian state, and Israel with secure borders. So this is not someone who's you know wildly out of step with places like Europe as well. Um, and in the past, um, if you look back to about you know a decade ago, there was a series of significant economic uh, and technological cooperation agreements with Peru that were announced. Um, so this is a country with which Israel has a pretty constructive past. Um, and I don't think there's any reason to believe that this is going to be a drastic change in the way that we've seen in other South American countries against Israel. Okay, thanks, Laser. We'll go to a short break now. The world we live in isn't perfect, but it doesn't get better on its own. That's where the work of activists comes in. Whether it's environmental justice, animal rights, or disability advocacy, there are people all around the world striving to make it a better place. That's where All About Change comes in. Host Jay Ruderman talks with activists about how they do what they do and what inspires them to keep going. Because activism is all about change. Listen to All About Change wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Laser, we recently were told about the death of a Jewish Ukrainian soldier who was killed last month fighting Russian forces. So who was Vladislav Shane? So uh, certainly someone that um, you know I haven't I didn't meet or speak with in my three trips to Ukraine, um, but I did hear from the uh, from Rabbi Moshe Azman, who's chief rabbi of Kiev's 
Brodsky Synagogue. He's in Israel right now, or at least he was in Israel on Friday. He sent me a picture in front of the hotel, um, and I met with him last week. And he he spoke about this young man, 21 year old, who was being he was quite involved in the Jewish community in, in Dnipro, which is one of the biggest Jewish communities. It has that massive Jewish community center. Um, from pictures that have been published by one of the communal Jewish organizations, you can see he has this um, blue and gold patch with uh, Ukraine and Hebrew on it that I've seen on other Jewish soldiers. And I will say that there's a lot of Jewish soldiers in Ukraine. Um, you know, I, there was times when I was kind of near the front lines, soldiers digging trenches in the woods uh, to the southeast of Kharkiv, and people come up to me and show off their Hebrew that they learned in, in Ulpans and Kiev. So this is cert certainly not something um, out of the ordinary, and it's certainly, um, you know, the Jewish community has come out very strongly here um, in favor of Ukrainian independence, or I guess independence isn't the right word, but in Ukrainian victory and is, is as um, active and enlisted as other communities um, in, in both in raising money and in, uh, in reaching out for support outside of Ukraine and also in fighting. So, yeah, he's one of the soldiers that uh, was killed. And in terms of Jewish soldiers that have fallen, I'm, I'm just right here, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head if, if I had heard of any others, and I actually have not. I'm sure there are some, but in terms of someone who is this active in the Jewish community, I mean, there's pictures of him with tefillin and, and, and praying, and, you know, he's uh, active uh, judoka as well. Um, so he was someone that was well known in that, that community. I'm sure that loss is, is felt, uh, you know, quite widely in, the, in that community in Dnipro. Laser, thank you for that. And now for something completely different, and back to you, Jack. You watched the Morocco-Portugal quarterfinal World Cup game last night in East Jerusalem. And I've had this burning question for a while. Why are Moroccan soccer supporters flying the Palestinian flag during the games or, or after as a victory lap? So uh, when talking about that phenomenon, I think we have to look at the specific context in Morocco and then zoom out a little bit to look at the Arab world. Uh, in Morocco, there's been a steady process uh, towards normalization with Israel. Um, basically, there was a, a bargain where Morocco would recognize Israel, and in return, the U.S. administration would recognize uh, Morocco's sovereignty over Western Sahara, which is uh, seen in the international community as occupied territory in, to the south of the Moroccan state. And basically... The business community in Morocco has been excited about normalization with Israel. Um, the military has been excited. Uh, there have been reports of Morocco using Pegasus spy software, which is Israeli software, on world leaders, including Emmanuel Macron. But the general public in Morocco has been rather reticent about normalization. And that's a major issue at the moment, and it's finding an expression on the pitch with the waving of Palestinian flags. Zooming out a little bit to the Arab world, the Palestinian flag is used as a sort of pan-Arab symbol. Um, when Arabs from Morocco to Iraq fly the Palestinian flag, what they're showing is their sense of belonging to a broader entity that's the Arab people that transcends national borders. Um, there isn't really a, an, a, a, an alternative uh, flag for that kind of pan-Arab identity. So Palestinian flag serves as this kind of glue for, for Arab identity, uh, especially now at a time when the Arab world is seen as so 
ripped apart by internal national problems and also by rivalries between uh, different Arab nations. For example, Morocco has a very bitter rivalry with Algeria that largely centers around Western Sahara because Algeria is seen as giving support to the Polisario Front, which is the separatist movement um, that's trying to get independence for Western Sahara. And again, uh, it looks like Morocco has used Pegasus technology to spy on Algerians, on other Arab leaders, uh, most notably uh, Bouteflika, the, the president of, of Algeria. Um, so yeah, I think, I think again, uh, to sum up, uh, Moroccans are flying the flag because there's an internal political debate around uh, normalization, and it's also an important pan-Arab symbol, and this is uh, World Cup being held in an Arab country for the first time, and Moroccans are wanting to show the fans in Qatar that they see themselves as proud Arabs and support Arab causes. So it's not necessarily a pro-Palestinian move, it's more of a pro-pan-Arab move, is uh, what you're saying. I mean, I think it is also a pro-Palestinian move, but I, I think uh, the optics are, are largely about, um, you know, showing a kind of support for Arab causes. Uh, but I think it's also certainly a, a pro-Palestinian uh, move. I think it's both. Really fascinating. Thank you so much. And I'm sure we'll be seeing a lot more Palestinian flags in the coming days, right? With yeah, the semifinal coming up. Especially in East Jerusalem. I mean, there were there are Palestinian flags everywhere when I was watching it. And uh, every time there was a Palestinian flag on the screen, the, the, the crowd would just light up. It would be totally energetic. People were you know, pointing at the screen. They were clapping. And, and after the victory, I'll say, there was a Palestinian who took out a drum and was sort of playing in a traditional, like, Sahrawi style, the kind of... Celebratory. Mor- yeah, the Moroccan style of drumming. Oh, and okay. people were sort of make, doing zakharid, which are the, you know, ulations. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it was, uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. And uh, I think it'll be a lot of fun to watch it again in East Jerusalem. For sure. All right. Thanks so much, both of you. Laser, Jack, thanks for joining me today in our Jerusalem office. So thank fun. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. And be sure to check out our weekly feature, Times Will Tell, released every Friday. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.